Earlier this month was Hard Kids Awareness Week. Heart Kids New Zealand, which receives no government funding, has over 10,000 members. It provides Heart children and their families with practical and emotional support, such as information, education, training, counselling, specialist equipment, leadership development for Heart youth and adults, specialised camps for Heart Kids, an opportunity to connect with other families for a hot meal for hospital-bound families. Joining us now is Melisiuto Ese to share her inspirational journey as a double heart and lung transplant patient who received both practical and emotional support from Heart Kids New Zealand. Malo Lele, and thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, Mele. Malo Lele, Brian, thank you so much for having me. Well, Mele, firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself, dear. Uh, well, I'm 32 years old, and I am of Tongan descent, um, and I currently live in West Auckland, and I have a passion for writing, so I, I love being creative, yeah, whether it's writing, drawing, um, visual arts, so yeah, creative mind creative mind indeed and before we continue just acknowledging your amazing sister Manu here uh, supporting on the sidelines so thank you so much as well uh, Manu for uh, joining us this afternoon now 14 years of age uh, you were diagnosed with a congenital heart defect tell, tell us about that let's go back to the beginning yeah so um, at 14 I just started high school so you know just starting year nine um, at Carlson Girls High School um, and during winter I was walking to and from school at the time and it was winter and I, I probably got a cold um, and I started coughing up blood um, at the time, my parents were, you know, just thinking what happened there. So they, they took me to Starship. And while we were there, the test and everything, um, and they told me that I had pneumonia. So we went home, you know, with the medication that they gave me. A few months later, we got a letter to go see a heart doctor. So we were kind of confused. Like you said, you know, they told us it was pneumonia, but now we have to go see a heart doctor. So um, going to see the heart doctor went through all the tests that they needed to do, the scans. And one of the scans I remember was one doctor was doing the, the scans. And then about 10 minutes later, he'll go get another doctor. And then by the end of the session, I had like four doctors staring at the screen. So I, I became quite worried, like, what what's wrong? And they weren't really telling me anything. Um, so eventually they did another test and told my parents that I was... I have a congenital heart, which is called Isomingler syndrome. Um, apparently, it's a very rare condition. Um, and because it's found too late, they can't correct it. So the thing is just to leave it alone. So they, they left it alone. So what did they say in the way of treatment at that time when you were uh, 14 to you <clears throat> and your family? At that time, there was no cure. Um, there is no cure for that condition. Um, so... The only solution was to have a transplant. But to be considered for transplant, you have to be, I guess they say, really, really sick. So to them, I wasn't sick enough. Yeah. <laughs> so I wasn't sick enough to be, like, put on a transplant list. So they saw that I was doing okay. So they just said, we'll just monitor as the years go. But if it gets to a time, you know, then they would consider it. But it was pretty much try and live life. Yeah. 
Now, you're 14 years of age mm-hmm. at high school and you've been diagnosed uh, with, you know, congenital yeah. heart defect. What was that like for you and your family? Talk to me how, you know, the, the reaction. Yeah. Um, well, because, you know, we migrated to New Zealand and when my, any, as any other family would receive such news, we'll be devastated, you know. For my parents, I could imagine, you know, the life that they would think they would fought for their child would have you know um just a normal life but now it's kind of cut off having received that news so they kind of wrapped me up in a bubble so it was like I went from the duties of you know doing chores and stuff to doing no chores at all um so I mean it would be a dream for any child not to do anything but it was their way of protecting me because they I guess they didn't know how to really deal with it so they just protected me, not letting me do anything. So I just sat down, watched TV. As long as I was in front of them and they could see I was not doing anything, they were okay with it. But <clears throat> I guess for me, I was kind of torn between two worlds because I just started becoming a teenager, you know, just starting high school. But then also having to think adult topics, you know, like becoming mature at an early age especially with the condition as well and trying to I didn't know how to I guess communicate it to my friends um, as well as school um, I kind of started lacking at school because I was so concentrated on the condition itself that I just kind of lost interest in school When you were first diagnosed at 14 mm. did the doctors say to you well you know in terms of how many more years like you know life expectancy as well or? um <clears throat> well, they only told my parents, but I did ask later, um, and they said there was a, a a man with similar condition to mine who lived to fifty. So I, at fourteen, I kind of lived with the idea that I would only reach fifty, because that was the only, I, I guess, the only example that they were given me. They didn't have a definite year for me. It was just like similar person went through what you're going through, so they reached that age. So. Who knows, you might reach that as well. Mm. Now, 14, how many years until it got to the stage where doctors, okay, uh, you are at a, you know, a level where it is bad enough that you mm. need to have a transplant? Um, about 27 years that I've lived, yeah. I mean, I was born with the condition itself, so you could say I lived about, I don't know, I guess 30, mm. 31 years. But knowing you know the the condition since diagnosis at 14 is 27 years. Yeah. How was that for you during that whole time? Really? <laughs> um, I honestly, by the grace of God, is the reason why I'm still here. Um, because it's it's really, really tough. Um, as any other illness um, journey for anybody else. But for me, um, I went through high school. So we, we ended up moving to a different area. And I... I went to a different school, and on the second day, the <clears throat> the principal's office called my parents and said that I couldn't attend school anymore, um, only because I fell through the cracks. They didn't want to be responsible if something was to happen in the school because it was a two-story school. Um, but then I wasn't, like, I wasn't fit enough. I guess I didn't fit the disability unit, so... I kind of fell between both, so I needed the, I guess, 
the resting place of a disability area, but then I didn't need the schooling of that place, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. So you get to about 30, and mm-hmm. then what happens from there? Can you tell us about the, um, you know, get um, the uh, transplant? What led up to the heart transplant for you? Yeah, so um, about five years ago, my condition started getting worse, and my body just started deteriorating. Um, I didn't have any more energy to do anything. I started relying on my family to even to bath as well, shower. Um, couldn't do anything for myself. Um, I started being on oxygen almost 24-7. And, yeah, it was. I just couldn't really function. Um, and I, there was a point I just lost hope. Um, and I had to beg my doctors that I, I can't wait to be sicker. Like, I'm sick enough. Mm. Because if they still wait for me to be sick, I won't have the strength to recover going through such, you know, um, surgeries. So I convinced them to keep looking. Um, At the time when we were talking about it, New Zealand doesn't offer double organ transplant. So we had to look elsewhere. And um, going through that process as well, I kind of thought, who knows, maybe in another two, three years it would happen. So I had to really be at peace with myself and peace with the situation knowing that I was going to die at any moment. So I had to be at peace with God as well and just be, I guess, grateful for how far my life has been and what I've accomplished throughout that life. When you're literally on death's door, Millie, how you know? How do you yeah. navigate that place in yourself, your your spirit, your heart, your mind? About okay, any day now, you know, I could, uh, mm. I could, I could die. But how do you, you know, yeah. l- do the one foot in front of the other thing? You know, to to yeah. continue. Um, I guess leaning up to that, um, I had to really um, be vulnerable. I guess in in Christ. Um, I guess in my own space so I literally had to I guess mourn the life that I thought my life would be the the dream that I had been dreamt and looking forward to the future so I had to literally mourn all those ideas and letting it go as if I'm letting somebody go you know so allowing to so allowing myself to do that got me to that peace that space and then when you came to that place, an opportunity opened up in Australia. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so it's, so, yeah, tell it's, us about um, I guess, I guess even though I made peace with my situation and accepting that I was going to, I guess, die at any moment, or um, I still had this tingly feeling that there was more for me. So I, I still, I just pray that, you know, if God, whatever purpose or whatever the end of my life will lead to, that's it. You know whether it will be transplant or not, then that's okay. So I, I guess, I guess the the positiveness and the the faith in God kind of just made things a bit easier. Mm-hmm. Now you had the transplant last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I understand in July. Yes. So tell us a bit about you know how uh, how you ended up in Australia and leading up to the yeah. the heart transplant, please. Yeah. So um, we went. Australia, um, December last year, um, New Zealand government, so my doctors um, had to present my case to uh, members of the board um, and got funding 
which also paid for our flights to and from Australia and also accommodation after um, and also my treatment and care. Um, and we got the call um, just early December and the nurse said, oh, are you okay to go on the 17th December? And I was like, what? Wait, what? Like, it's too soon. I was, you know, probably thinking a year's time. Um, and it was coming up to Christmas and she said, well, you never know because, you know, a donor might come up at that time. So as much as I wanted to spend Christmas with my family, I know that they wanted this opportunity for me. So we packed our bags and went to Sydney spend Christmas Day and New Year's and prayed that an organ donor might be found soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you got the call mm. that a donor had been found, take us through that, you know, what, what <laughs> you know, your your reaction. Um, I was currently in the hospital at the at the time and I got the call around nine PM. Um, my sister has just left the hospital. She's gone into uh, the living space that she was staying in. And I got the call and they said, Mele, um, they found a donor for you. And I was like, wait, are you serious? Um, and she said, yes, 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 we've got a donor. The doctor's coming up and you know, in an hour you'll get this doctor coming up and surgery will be prepped at about one o'clock in the morning. And I was like, okay, okay. So I called my sister and she comes up and we just, well, everybody was sleeping so I couldn't scream. So we just, you know, waved and hugged each other and, I didn't have a moment to cry because I was still so excited um, that a donor was found. Um, and then the doctor started coming and by the time I knew it, I was going down to theatre. And still, I haven't processed that an organ has been found for me. So I was still, I guess, in cloud nine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now the, uh, the the operation and the recovery talk us through that how long was the the the, the operation and just after you know coming yeah. out of theater and that and the initial mm. maybe you know a few weeks or months how yeah. how that has been um well the surgery itself was about i guess 13 hours um and i think cuz i i had some complication after uh, with one of the lungs so they had to put me back in after and you know do the whole thing again um, and then I went into ICU I was in ICU for about two and a half weeks um, it was I was asleep for majority of the first week um, and what I can remember waking up after that was I felt the same I felt breathless I felt my heart beating out of my chest and I was thinking to myself like wait this is supposed to change, you know, this is how I felt before, and I've just had my heart and my lungs, I shouldn't be feeling this, but forgetting that it takes time for the organs to settle in, you know, so I'm, and I lost muscles, um, you know, and, um, you know, you, you become very vulnerable, because you can't move, so pretty much you rely on the nurses for pretty much everything, so being in hospital so much kind of prepared me for that, and, and just being so open to the nurses to do their job. Um, and and um, I lost about 10 kgs, yeah, after the surgery. Um, so I had to relearn how to walk again, gain strength in my legs. So I lost a lot of strength in my legs. I always needed someone to help me up to stand up. I learned how to walk again. And also um, I started shaking because of the, the strength of the medications that they were giving me. Is that the rejection medication? Yeah, the anti-rejections. Anti-rejection, yeah. okay. So at first they really give you like high doses, um, 
and you you get the shakes your hand shakes and everything is kind of uncoordinated so having to relearn to i guess grasp get a get a hold of the shakes as well mm. yeah looking back almost a year <clears throat> on from the operation you know how are you now and what has been you know some of the or biggest uh, lesson that you've uh, taken away from your whole experience that you can encourage you know mm. our our listeners and viewers today Mary. um looking back now i i i guess that's the just having faith and knowing that the end is never the end um and and just being grateful for breathing um is, is something so small and simple that we're not aware of because it's so human for us it's so normal for us to do but breathing is is something it's a miracle in itself um I believe that we take that for granted sometimes. Um, you know, it meant going through a time where I couldn't breathe. You know, I was so wanting and dreaming to be able to breathe and run and breathe properly. And now that I do, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for it. And every single day, a breath of life, it's, it's a miracle in itself. So I guess it's just using that, that breath, that breath of life to live out something, I guess, good. Yeah. Um, I'm so sorry because we are nearing the end of our <laughs> Talanoa, but, I, I, you know, if only. But, you know, the, of course, the extensive support network and your sister Manu yeah. here, I, you know, I did want to acknowledge you because uh, she did leave her, quit her job to, to mm. come, you know, uh, for you. And I understand through Heart Kids as well, uh, yes. lovely Diane uh, yes. was a great support to you during that time. Talk to me about the support that you've received and what that meant to you during, uh, you, you know, the, this the whole process for you, the um, whole journey. Yeah, well, the Heart Kids has been a, a, one of the pillars in my support system. Um, and yes, Diane, uh, she would visit me majority, every single time I was in hospital, she would visit me. And we could talk about anything. And even topics um, that I wasn't able to talk about to my family not because I couldn't but because it was just I didn't feel like I don't want to put a burden on top of what they were going through already so having somebody else out of the family to discuss that with really helped me Um, and I also felt comfortable knowing that they were there for my family if something were to happen they know what is going on and they know how to deal with it so having that kind of gave me comfort um and also my family as well um they've they've given up quite quite a lot um yeah and my sister especially my sister um relying on her so much and fully now I'm gonna start to cry (laughs) and and fully um giving myself up and she knew that and she knew that was the big thing for me to do um yeah so she She'd given up her job and left her husband behind and followed me to Australia. So she um, she made the experience worth everything. And my parents as well. Um, migrating us and trying to look for a better life gave me this opportunity without them knowing that this was going to happen, you know. Um, and yet they all stood by me and I guess one thing that kind of gets unnoticed is the support of the families because they go through what patients go through emotionally, mentally and 
it would be a roller coaster. But they go through it twice because they're the one on the sideline watching um, and they can't do anything about it because they watch you deteriorate as you go and they can't do anything and it must be really frustrating for them. So, yeah, it's I'm really, really lucky that I've got that system and that support um, for myself and I guess that's what made the journey so unique and impossible um, to where it is today because I had that support. So, yeah. Uh, we've been so blessed today. Uh, thank you so much for your time. God bless you. God bless you. Uh, Manu and uh, to the family. I love you too.